Amen. Thank you, brother. Now, I love how personal God is even in our, in our offering. It's good stuff. Good morning, everyone. So it is an honor to be with you all today. I just realized sitting up here, you know, I came to be part of this family, this community, almost 10 years ago next month. So 10 years ago in February, almost a decade. So it's pretty wild. I just, it just hit me when I was up here. Like, I've been a part of this family for 10 years. Um, so it's an honor to be here. I, I, have, I have a word that I feel like is really timely. And the name of it, I'll just go ahead and get it out of the bag because I'm going to unpack a lot of it today. The, the name of my, of my message today is the deception of humanism. All right? The deception of humanism. And, and really, the... I want to even focus on that word deception. So there's, there's many things around us, right, that, that aren't what they seem. And I want to read to you a mission statement. This is from a company, a company that many of you probably know. It doesn't currently exist. But I want to read to you this mission statement and see what you think of it, all right? So here's the mission statement. It says, our vision is to become the world's leading energy company, creating innovative and efficient energy solutions for growing economies and a better environment worldwide. Sounds good so far. We work with our customers and prospects openly, honestly, sincerely, and we will continue to raise the bar for everyone. The great fun here is that we will, here will be for all of us to discover just how good we can really be. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound like a company you wanna, you wanna get behind? Energy solutions, innovation, you know, integrity. This is the mission statement for Enron, all right? So those of you that are a bit younger, Enron in 2000, 2002 um, got caught with one of the biggest scandals in U.S. history, um, a big accounting scandal where their um, Arthur Anderson and their firm, they basically, I, I don't know all the details of it, but they basically were lying about their, their, their monies and their revenues and so, so if you listen to this mission statement, right, and you as an as a investor said, I'm going to put stock, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in this mission, right, that Enron has presented, you would have lost a lot of money. They're, overnight, their shares went from $90 to pennies, all right, because it was all fluff. It was all, it looked nice, right, and even, you know, the statement, the mission statement is nice, but there was no substance, all right. It was pure deception. And, you know, many companies, I'm sure, you know, you all here work for many companies, organizations, right? You can have certain mission statements, and y y we all know they're a bit flowery, all right? We all know that they're, you know, they're done up a bit. But this one with Enron is pure deception, right? It's completely, it's completely false based on what they actually did, how they actually treated people. And, um, and humanism is, is quite similar in that humanism, it espouses to be this great thing that's going to help humanity, that's going to move things along, progress, innovation, I integrity. But it's com if you look underneath of it, it's completely built off of a godless, destructive center. All right? That's the center of a humanistic mindset. And I want to challenge that center today, and I want to show you where that has infiltrated so many places in our culture. It's infiltrated our own heart. Um, and, and we need to be aware of it because we are salt and light. We cannot mix with worldly ideologies because they will try to steal and corrupt the gospel that we've been given to defend, to proclaim, and to live out. 
How many of you know that one of the best ways to, to lie to, to someone, like the best lies are ones that have components of truth in them, all right? And I, I believe humanism is, is of that sort of nature. And, and, and I want to, just even before I get into it, I just want to say I know many people that have these worldviews, and these worldviews have impacted me personally, and I've bought into it. So there's no shame attached, and there's no, there's no like, them and us approach, right? If you don't know Jesus, humanism is likely your default worldview in, in the modern culture, to be honest. So I don't want you to take it to them and us, or, oh, yeah, I know people that think like that. Like, that's not how... I want to package this this morning, okay? It's how do we make sure this doesn't invade the church, invade our hearts, so that we can be salt and light. It's just a very different but important nuance, all right? So modern, what am I talking about? Modern secular humanism. Um, so it started to develop uh, the, the modern form of it, and I call it secular humanism. Um, it started to develop during the Renaissance period. So it, 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 Renaissance was a rebirth, right, of ideas um, and it was a revival and in interest in the classical world, um, you know, Greek culture. Um, and it, the focus really went away during that season from religion and became more about the human being. All right. There was a lot of corruption in the church at that time. If you read about Martin Luther and, you know, the whole Reformation, that'll give you some some context. Um, but above all, the Renaissance humanists, here's what they asserted. They asserted that the, the genius of man, the unique and extraordinary ability of the human mind was now the centerpiece of the world. That was your centerpiece if you were, a part, if you were caught up in this renaissance. And then, so there was great artwork and there, there was great things, there were some great things going on, but the, the, in the middle of this ideology is man is central, is man is to be lifted up and to be idolized and to be infatuated with. So they were more infatuated with men than they were with God. That, that's the... That's the you know, the brass tacks. So here's a, here's a thing I looked up uh, about that time. So during the time of the Renaissance, they called for a comprehensive reform of the culture, all right? So humanists called for comprehensive reform of the culture, the transfiguration of what humanists term the passive and ignorant society of the Dark Ages to a new order that would reflect and encourage the grandest, catch this, human potentialities. The, grand, the grandest things that a human being can do. There's no mention of God in that. There's no need for God in that, in that way of thinking, okay? So another, here's another section of this. They sought education in classical literature, promotion of civic virtue. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, and that would release a person to their full potential for both their own good and the good of society in which they live. Well, doesn't that sound great? Like, that sounds good. But here, the problem is God is not a factor in this worldview. He's not, he's not something that's being promoted. He's not centric to society or to people. It's all about human potential, human ingenuity. But who made the human? And where did, the, where did humans' creativity come from? It's like looking at the stars and not realizing why they were there and who put them there. And so there, there was a, a massive lie that came into the minds of many, many people in that era, in my opinion. Um, and while there was good ideas, they carved God out of the center, all right? So they may have some good ideas, some virtuous things, but they carved God out. They took the center out. And what, when you remove the life center, called Life Center Church, you, you, you have major problems. When God is not your life center, you are, one, deceived, but you're also, you don't have life. 
you're drawing from inferior sources, all right? So um, Dave Slyker at, um, at IHOP had this great example that I want to use about the Renaissance in that period. And he, he used the example of the statue of David. You ever seen that statue of David? Big, muscular, like David, and he's naked. You know, he's like all, all of human, you know, human, um, you know, it, it, it is a, it's kind of like an idol, right? And it, but it, it depicts David in this big bust and this very muscular man. But don't you know the Bible says David was ruddy? <laughs> Read it. It's in the Bible. It says he was ruddy. He was, you know, they, they, I mean, Goliath mocked him. He was this ruddy little boy. And, and so it's interesting that, you know, they would take that image and use it to glorify man and forget where was David's strength? Where was, why was David successful? It wasn't because he's big and strong. It's because he trusted God. And so I think that in a, in, a, in a visual way captures kind of how things have shifted and how that impacts today. All right. So I want to lay this out. So this is Jesus followers versus secular humanism. I'm just going to lay out a few points to help us kind of dissect this. All right. Jesus followers fall in love with God daily and worship him alone. All right. As a Jesus follower, a secular humanist fall in love with human potential and capacity instead of being in awe with the one who created them. In love with God, in love with human potential and capacity. All right, Jesus followers, believe God is the source of authority and the source of truth. Human secularists, believe the individual is a source of authority and truth. Big difference. Jesus followers, seek the knowledge of God first and in everything else is second. Secular humanists, seek the knowledge of men to obtain the power. Jesus followers, united in God by the Holy Spirit. Humanist, unified by achieving greatness. Unified in what we do, not who we serve. How many know that unity was not sustainable? History has proven over time that any culture or people group that were centered on human achievement, they faltered. Right? It, it was not sustainable. And, and so you can see historically that these pursuit, pursuits resulted in extreme letdown for the culture. And likewise, secular humanism will lead in a massive letdown for those of us that agree with it and that espouse to it. A massive letdown. Because what it does is it takes us out of our need for God and it focuses everything on the individual. And now it's all on you. It's all on you. It's on your effort. And your life revolves around you. And you got to know that is a, it's a destructive recipe for life. But it's subtle and it sounds good. And I'm shocked. At, the more I just kind of think about this concept and look, I discover how pervasive it is in the culture. Like it is all over the place. And hopefully we can unpack that a bit more. This morning I was... I was walking around my apartment, and, um, and I'm kind of, I forget what I was doing, praying or doing something, something holy, I'm sure. And, and Lilu, which is my, my middle daughter, she's three, almost four, she likes to leave these little figures. They're like this big. She leaves them all over the house. It drives me crazy because I'm like just walking along, and all of a sudden, ah, like I, I felt 
my wife laughs at me because she's like, you're like an old man. It's like, but these things are everywhere. And my older daughter, she gets annoyed too because she's just going along and all of a sudden, bam, you hit this thing and like your feet are cringing and like, because these little, anyway, these little figurines are like glass shards hiding around my carpet. And I thought, man, this is how I feel even covering this topic of humanism. I feel like everywhere I go and what I look at, all of a sudden, ah, like I'm stepping on this, these concepts that are baked into our life. And we're just going along not realizing that these things are influencing us and they're stealing us from the thing that matters most. God, they're stealing us from God as our center, as our infatuation, and they're putting our eyes on the wrong things. And, and I was shocked at how, how prevalent it is. So we can see this quite a bit in 2021 um, in our culture. We can even see it in the church. Um, one man put it this way. I thought this was a great way of describing it. He said, in this present age, we've built homes with windows and without skylights. Homes with windows and no skylights. What does it mean? We built homes. We built lives where we're looking out. We're looking, we're looking at others. We're looking into the culture, and we're not looking up. We're not looking to God. We're not looking for our source, for our center. And what happens is when you get in chaotic moments like this, you see the windows in your home, the windows in your life, and you say, gosh, I got I to gotta build holes in my ceiling because I have to see God. I have to have God. And I'm freaking out because my life is built around me and it's built around the world and how it perceives me. And so I just think that that picture is helpful for us. Let's build homes with skylights, not just with windows looking out. We have to look out. We are salt and light. We're, we're going into the world. We're not, you know, secluded. But if we're not looking up, if the light of Christ is not shining on upon us, looking out is going to be the most destructive thing you can possibly do. Um, so if you find yourself looking out in this season, I can tell you, you may have humanism baked in to your life, and you didn't even know it, all right? So when we're looking out, we're, we're looking for, we, we need somebody to save us, in a sense, because we don't have God. And this, in this mindset, it's about you, and if you either have to save yourself, or you have to find a savior in the earth, an individual, a movement, a leader, somebody that can save you. Because you need a savior. And that's, I mean, that's the greatest deception of all. Um, in this mindset, right, that you, you have no God, there's no righteous judge. So who's going to bring the judgment? Well, it's you. You have, to, you have to bring judgment to the earth. You have to make sure things are right. Because ultimately, there is no righteous judge in this worldview. All right? In this worldview, you... You have no identity, right? Your identity is what you do and how you can accomplish the things. It's all about you, right? So as culture shifts and moves, you're going you're gonna to shift and move with it because you are trying to, to become something for other people, to, uh, to possess an identity, and that identity can only be found in the perception of other people if there's no God at your center, all right? So that is, if, if, you, if this worldview exists in your heart, these are, this is how you will respond to the things on on the earth. You'll be tossed to and fro um, like the waves. But as I said, the underlying lie is that God doesn't exist, that his arm won't save you, and that your actions go unseen or don't matter. That's the underlying lie of a, a humanistic worldview. But we know the truth. God's alive. Jesus is mighty to save, and he is a righteous judge, and he will make all things right. 
right? I mean, those truths, preach that truth to yourself. <laughs> Remind yourself, God's alive, Jesus is mighty to save, he sees all things, and he will bring righteous judgment. A few other examples I want to paint in terms of our culture and how it relates to humanism. Watch most of the TED Talks, right? Go on the TED Talks. There's some great stuff on TED Talks. I like TED Talks. But watch a lot of them. And it's funny. The, the core idea is human progress, innovation. Like we together will do this to change the world. It's all about human progress. And I mean, it really is. And once again, I'm not putting down TED Talks. I think there's some great things and some great ideas I'm just saying, what's the core of what's being preached? And it is being preached. What's the core? What are you being discipled into when you listen to some of these TED Talks? I'm not saying don't listen to TED Talks. I'm saying don't be discipled by humanism. Kids movies. I watch a lot of kids movies these days. I've got three little girls. My three-month-old doesn't watch them, but the other ones do. Um, I was watching one the other day. It's a great movie. It's called Jingle Jangle. It's, uh, I forget where it is, but anyway, it's a fun movie, and it's like, I mean, it's a good message, you know, it's, it's like real empowering, good, right? And then this girl starts singing this song, I'm like, man, this is a great song, I'm going to sing this song, and then I, I started listening to, listening to the lyrics, and I'm like, boy, this is like stepping on that toy, like, this is, what is this? <laughs> so here's the lyrics, right? It's called, uh, The Square Root of Possible is the name of the song. It's so possible. Watch me rise above my obstacles. Watch me become who I'm supposed to be. Oh, the possibilities. Because the square root of impossible is possible in me. In me. Sounds great. Empowering for girls. Like, all right. It's built on humanism. It's built on the power of this girl to do stuff. To achieve. So it sounds great. But it ultimately, what's it going to breed, right? What does this ideology breed? It breeds arrogance. It breeds envy. It breeds a false sense of superiority. It breeds pursuing money, influence, fame, because it's all about you. It breeds, I don't even know what else it breeds, a lot of things. <laughs> but we get discipled by, by a lot of these ideologies. And we wonder why there's so much depression there's so much body image issues. There's so much poor self-esteem. We wonder why there's so much fakeness um, out there, people putting up fronts, facades. Because we care more than probably any society ever. How we care and we're aware of how people view us. And it matters to us more than anything else in, in the modern culture. It matters so much. And there's so many people to see you, right, in, in, in the era we live in. I think we often talk about, um, well, I'll say this. I, I think it's obvious that without God as our identity, our center, we are hopelessly lost, and, and we are, will pursue purpose. We'll pursue things for a sense of purpose, and we'll never get to it. Right? How many people do you know, and maybe you're, you're in the same place, always looking for your purpose and never attaining it, right? Go from job to job to job to thing to thing to thing. Trying to find purpose. I mean, that's my generation. The millennials were purpose-driven. And there's part of that that's great. But if you're never finding it, maybe you've lost your center. 
Like maybe you're living for something that's not the call of God, and you're just living for this dream, this desire that's actually not connected to how God made you because he's not your center. You're not thinking, what did God make me for? You're thinking, what do I desire? What do I want? And your desires are things not to ignore, but the call of God on your life, it, over, it, is, the, it is the paramount thing to build your life around, all right? So, we, you know, we often talk about getting identity out of our jobs or identity out of our ministry. So we don't want to do that. Don't get identity out of those things. But I, I want to propose, perhaps, it's not that we're getting identity out of those things. It's, maybe it's that we've made ourselves the center. We've actually put ourselves in the center. And so no matter what comes into that sphere, we start to get identity from it because we are the center of our life. And, and so as much as we try to, like, get our identity out of what we do, if we're the center, we will always have identity in what we do. We will never be able to get free of it. Humanism in the church. So there's a, I was in the Poconos recently, and there's this, there's this store. It's called Grandma's Corner. It's a great little store. You know, it's got this picture outside of this happy grandma. And you go up to the store, and there's a big awning. And the awning says, welcome, where it's all about you. <laughs> I want to go to Grandma's Corner. It's all about me in Grandma's Corner. She's going to bake me pies and make me things. I, I don't know it. I haven't been in there yet. But I thought the sign was funny. And I said, gosh, I feel like churches, like, we often kind of have that over the front of our church. Like, we don't have that actual sign, but we kind of say it in what we say and what we do. Welcome. It's all about you. We're here to serve you. And, and this is not the gospel. <laughs> What is this? Like, yes, we're here, we're here for one another, support one another. But when you make the gospel all about you and not about Jesus and what he laid down, it, it, it's completely like you're completely off. And, and so I feel as the church, we've, you know, at large, I'm saying, um, we, start to, we start to really just attach Jesus up onto our life. You know, Jesus is just a part of what's already going on. And sometimes we come to church or we get connect just because we get our needs met versus like actually like maturing in God, actually honoring God and, and growing and being empowered in God. Um, I think we, we often come to a place where we can, we accept Jesus. Many people have accepted Jesus, I believe, because of what they think Jesus can give them. And let me tell you, you in this season, you're probably seeing those things dry up, that faith dry up. And I want to encourage you, if that's you or you know people in that, this is not the time to say, you've got humanism in you. No, this is the time to say, God, what gospel did I believe? Like, what is my theology and how do I get, how do I get it straight? All right. It's not about condemning or judging. It's about exposing these things that have crept into our hearts and saying, no, Jesus, I want you. It's not about what God gives you. It's about what his blood of Christ that was shed for you. And it's about what he gave for you. So now your life belongs to him. It's totally different. And I, I just feel like it's been mixed up um, in such a way where we're not seeing things rightly because Jesus is not the center. Um, if Jesus exists to just serve us, you know, then what happens when Christianity doesn't benefit you? Right? We might be dealing with this. We already are if you live in New York, right? Does Christianity benefit you in New York? Do you go out and like tell people, I'm a Christian, and they're just like, I love you so much. <laughs> that does not happen. Um, 
So the rest of the country, we're ahead of them from the, in that perspective. Um, what happens when your dreams are delayed? You know, you, you meet God, and, I mean, Dan was here last, last week. He was saying, you know, he met God, and he's doing all these great things, and all of a sudden, he's in prison. He's, like, you know, facing, like, he's almost dead. He should have died. It's like, what happens when hard things come if Jesus is just there to serve you? You get disillusioned. You think Jesus is not for you, and, and you, your faith starts to unravel. All right. Um, so these are these are just important things to take note of, not to shame anybody, but to be aware of our heart condition because we want to get healthy and whole. So I think it's funny to think about this, like, all right, what Bible story like connects with like the idea of humanism? Like in what Bible story have you read? Do people come together and they have a problem? And so they all get together and they get unified and they figure out a great solution, and then they change the world. What Bible story has that? What, and, and what Bible story do they amass lots of great knowledge, and then they're able to overcome, you know, the most terrible, destructive thing that's trying to take Jerusalem? But they get knowledge and understanding, and they overcome. That is, there's only one Bible story that even has that parallel, and I'll read it to you. And it's the Tower of Babel. They got it here on the, you know, man, the people in the front are sharp. That's the only Bible story that has this narrative, okay? And I'm going to share with you that narrative right now. So this is uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4 through 9. It's the Tower of Babel. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city, a tower, whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. I want you remember that. Let us make a name for ourselves. This is the motivator. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the Son of Man had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, it is, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So that's the one story that has this narrative. And how does it end? <laughs> Not good. The goal in the Tower of Babel was for people to make a name for themselves. God was not the center. The goal, they didn't have an identity. This, this building, this tower, this, this thing that perceived the heaven, that, that was their goal, is to be known. Fame. To, to do something within their the human ability together that was going to be great before the nations. And they were deceived. So I want to go to this, Genesis 9-1. What did God tell them to do? So God blessed Noah. This is right after the flood, and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That was the charge of God for those that came after the flood, after Noah, which these are the people that came after the flood, after Noah. So not only were they doing something that was not productive and that God didn't like, they, they were ultimately rebelling against how God had made them. God made them be fruitful to go out. And what did they do? Instead, they hunkered down, 
they got together and they plotted to do this great thing. What they were doing was actually, it may have looked good, but it's actually rebellious. It's completely rebellious to what God told them to do because they had lost their sense of God. They lost their connection with God. And when you are void of the knowledge of God, you will do things that are utterly reckless, rebellious, and destructive. And it's really sad. It's really sad. If it's you, if you're relating to this or you know people relating to this, I just want you to hear the heart of God on the matter. He wants to be your center. He wants to revive and restore. He wants you to have life. When he sees rebellion, he doesn't think punish. He thinks, come to me. Come to me. All right? I just think we got to look at these, these. We have to look at these stories a bit differently. All right? And I'll, I'll talk more about that. Um, all right. So contrast, right? Right after the Tower of Babel is chapter 12 of Genesis. It's the story of Abraham. I think this is a very intentional thing that God has put in his word. All right? So contrasting Babel, you have Abraham. I'm going to read from you. I'm going to read to you Genesis 12, 1 through 5 about Abraham. All right? Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. 75, man, it's a spring chicken, and out he goes to fulfill the word of the Lord. See, Babel, they were, they were driven by their desire to do something great. Abraham was driven by the call of God on his life. That's what drove him. And he took a great risk, actually. He left. At that time, there's no governments protecting you. He left his family, the very thing that was his protection, and he went to where the Lord said. And he was thrust forth into a new land as a foreigner. And so it cost him a lot. But he, he went out of obedience and in faith, and he went with because of the purpose of God on his life. Very different than creating and doing something in order to obtain purpose, to obtain significance. And you see what happened to him. He thrived everywhere he went. He had God at the life center. It was his center. And so everywhere he went, even when he did things that weren't so good, you know, hey, this, is, this isn't my wife. This is my sister, Sarah. And meanwhile, you know, people are getting cursed and bad things are happening. They're like, dude, what's wrong with you, man? You're, you're blessed. Like, stop lying and deceiving and hiding. So even in his faults, right, God was with him and God blessed him because he went with the purpose and call of God, not just to do something great, not with a humanistic worldview. I was reading this story to my girls. Um, we've got this map that my wife got. Um, it's about the persecuted church in the world and so it has a whole world map and it shows you the different um, nations that are facing persecution all right and you know you so we've been praying every night we just started last night for like two nations you know that that were persecuted 
And, you know, it has all these stories. It's the voice of the martyrs. It's this, like, magazine we get. And we read these stories. And so we're, last night we're praying. We're praying for North Korea. We're praying for Sudan. And, um, and it was just really powerful. And, like, you know, like, girls are just giving these prayers. And then I, it was such a, a strange um, comparison. Or uh, I, I then go to pick up this prayer book that we have for the kids and, you know, we just got done praying for the persecuted church and these people that their lives are falling apart. You know, their husband's a pastor and he was killed. And it's insane, you know. And we, we pick up the book and it's like, God bless the moon and God bless me. And I was like, gosh, like these prayers are really like really humanistic. Like <laughs> it, it just feels so disconnected from from real Christianity, you know. And, and I'm just thinking about how do I raise these kids up? to be like salt and light, to, to, to really like, you know, not just pray these fluffy things or go through the motions or really have themselves at the center but attach Jesus to it. And I'm praying, God, show me how to do it because this, this stuff, these like kid prayers are just so off from the reality that most of the world faces that are believers, the persecution, the, the sacrifice, and, and the focus is just totally different when you're in that sort of environment versus, you know, when you're just in the West doing your thing with Jesus, it's just very different. And, um, and so I, I want to read about another father, a spiritual father. Um, this just comes from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, I'm going to read um, a couple chapters. Um, and the spiritual father is Paul. And he is going through the same conundrum I was last night. How do I raise up my spiritual son to fulfill the call of God that's been on my life? And his son is, his spiritual son is Timothy. And Timothy is in, um, he's actually located in Ephesus, which is a pretty big church at the time. Um, so he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Um, and he, what he's writing, he's actually, he was in a Roman prison. And, and this was the last book, the last epistle that, that Paul wrote. And so he's in a Roman prison. And he, he's recognizing that his time is, is coming to a close. That the ministry that he's forerun, that his calling on God is, is about the chapters closing. And so he's writing to a spiritual son to encourage him to continue in the work that God had given Paul to do. And so that's all important context as we kind of dip into this, um, this verse. I want to read from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And so he's instructing Timothy here specifically how to deal with these trials and the struggles that are going to come in the last time, in the last days. All right. So he's saying, Timothy, these things are coming and I want to share this with you because I want you to be able to endure and to thrive in what's coming. All right. So this is when, when I say the last days, right, the last days is it's really like from from Jesus un, unto whenever he returns. Right. We are in the last days. All right. We, we are there. So so what he's saying is relevant to us right now. It was relevant to Timothy, you know, in 80, 67 AD when he wrote it, all right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. I mean, that relates to what we're talking about today, okay? Lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Isn't that one kind of like, it's like, whoa, all these, and then disobedient to their parents. Isn't that one like feel a little different to you? I wonder if our culture, we've missed that, right? That one feels a little different, but it's there. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. I mean, this is an intense list, all right? So I came up with a name for this. You know, in Matthew 5, you get the Beatitudes. This is the bad attitudes, all right? <laughs> the bad attitudes. Second Timothy 3. You, you might never forget that. You probably forget a lot what I said, but hopefully you remember that. Second <laughs> Timothy 3, the bad attitudes. And he's saying, rid your, these, things, these things are no good, right? These things rid yourself of. And I think part of the reason he's saying it is because there, there's coming a time, and I think we're already in that time, where some of these things aren't perceived as being that bad. We're not understanding that these are bad, terrible things, that these are the opposite of what God wants for us and the opposite of how we should live our life. And, and so he's sharing that, and then he says what? Have nothing to do with such people. Whoa. All right. Well, how does, how does that work? Um, I'm not going to pull that part that part, but what I want to go to, because I think we can get hyper-focused on this verse and say, whoa, bad things, bad people, like, we need to, like, you know, fight them, you know, we can, we can get in that mentality, but let's read what he had to say before this verse, all right, I want to read 2 Timothy 2, verse 23, and this will give you some, um, anyway, you'll get where I'm going here, 2 Timothy 2, verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Boy, we could, we could hear, hear that. I could preach right now. <laughs> because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. That's a good word. Opponents must be gently instructed. But he's about to list all these terrible things that people are doing before he says it. Opponents, gently instruct. Important point. Gently instructed in what? In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. We've got to know this part before we read the second part. I read it opposite just because I wanted to make it dramatic. <laughs> we got to know this part. We got to know this part. We are in a season where we're going to see things that look like the bad attitudes. And we can't, we, if we think we're the sinner, we're going to judge. We're going to judge our own brothers and sisters. Away from me. You're doing these things. They're, they're bad. The word of God says it's bad. You're bad. I want nothing to do with you. No, pray they would come to their senses. Gently, what does it say? Gently instruct. Doesn't mean you're quiet. Doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. You gently instruct. This is so important because we're in a season where the harvest is at hand. Many, many souls are going to come into the kingdom. Don't get caught up in all these other narratives. Like, we should be aware of what's happening in the culture. Sure, we got to have windows in the house, but you got to look up. We have to look up or we won't discern that the harvest is still at hand right now in this generation. And I, I believe that with all my heart. We've been preaching that, you know, 10 years, and, and I believe it. And we can't lose sight of that narrative. But we must gently instruct and pray that people come to their senses and not judge and not put ourselves at the center.
God sees all things and he will reward all things. And we can trust that. So I, I want to go real quick. Um, I, I have a couple tools um, to detect if perhaps there's, there's humanism lurking in our worldview, in our mind. All right. So I, wanna, I have like basically four statements that I want to read. And I want you to just take them before the Lord and say, God, is there any of that in my heart? All right. And where we're going here, we're going to pray that God rips it all out today and that he's the center, that his blood, his way is the center. All right. That's where we're going. But right now I'm going to read these four statements. All right. Tools to detect if you might have a humanistic worldview invading your world. All right. Number one, you don't see sin as a big issue. This is a really important one. If you believe a humanistic worldview, sin is not that big of a deal. Like what is, you know, it's all about people will overcome, they'll unite, will build, will achieve. I mean, I, that is, that, that's how we see, the, they see the world. Um, and the big, fault, the big fault of a humanistic worldview is we, there's not a revelation that sin has corrupted the human heart. This is really important. <laughs> This is biblical truth. This is the word of God. Sin has corrupted the human heart. And because of that, if you build anything on men, on people, on, on any, if there's a power, if there's a central power in charge of anything, it gets totally corrupted without Jesus. All right? If Jesus is not in the heart of a person, they're going to be corrupted by sin. They cannot escape sin's corruption. All right? And even when Jesus is in your heart, boy, sometimes we give in to sin's corruption, and we can't act like it's not, it's not at our door, all right? So I think we're in a, a kind of a, a letdown moment right now where we're recognizing, oh, wow, like, technology cannot save us. Like, oh, um, leaders cannot save us. Movements cannot save us. Political parties cannot save us. Certain idea, even ideas can't save us. We can't be saved by human achievement. We cannot. And so as we come to the end of that thinking right now in the letdown, you know, let it sit and rest in the season where we've all been humbled at some level, God's going to become the sender. And for those that are going to be shaken in this moment, they're going to look for people that have a center, <laughs> that have somewhere to stand, and it's going to be me and you. Because only Jesus can deal with the issue of sin. Nobody can manage your sin without Jesus. If somebody promises you transformation without Jesus, they are lying to you. There is no transformation without Jesus. You cannot overcome without Jesus, and you cannot be good without Jesus. There are people that do good things, and I'm not saying that people who don't have Jesus aren't, don't do good things, but I, I'm saying you can't be transformed without Jesus. All right? It doesn't happen. Number two, that was a long one. Next, the next ones are going to be quick. Um, so the number one was you don't see sin as such a big issue. Number two, your primary focus is on temporal and material things. That's the primary focus, right? So there's, you have an obsession with aesthetics, with perception to other people. Um, you have a goal of amassing material things that, that provides a sense of security. You're thinking about the present and not the future, and certainly not the eternal. This mindset is humanism, and it's destructive. Right now, our national debt in this country is $27 trillion. 
not focused on the long term, right? We're focused on instant gratification, do things right now. Okay. I mean, this is, it's plaguing us at the highest levels of our society, okay? Number three, you trust only what you can see and observe. This is a big one. So I only trust what I can see right in front of me. I only trust something I have the science and the data and the information to back. Revelation from outside this natural world, I don't trust. I don't trust it. I have to see it. I have to know it for sure. It's certainly good to have evidence, to have data, to use reason. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not allowing any space for the supernatural, for the revelation of God to come in, you're deceived. Number four, you value your personal truth or someone else's truth over God's truth. In a humanistic worldview, the individual is the authority and is the, the soul, the truth of that person is what matters the most. But as we say, God is the, he is above all. He is, he is the author of truth. He is the, the authority that we're accountable to. And so you think about how this impacts culture. Um, I mean, you have people that believe that their kids have more authority than they do to decide their gender or decide their sexuality. People believe this because in that worldview, right, they are the, that child, that individual is the source of authority and truth. So it will lead to these sort of mentalities, right? All right, I'm going to keep going. I mean, I want to go back to Paul. Um, and so he was sharing about, with Timothy, right, how to circumvent or how to overcome the chaos that was coming in the last days, that was coming as he was departing the earth. And he really had two antidotes that he gave to, to Timothy in terms of how to fight these these worldviews and the challenges that Timothy was facing in Ephesus. The number one thing that he told Timothy to do was to preach the word of God. That's the number one thing that I get when I read 2 Timothy. He's talking continually about the importance of the word and the importance that it's preached and that it's heard and that it's received and that people are allowing the word of God to be their source of truth. And, and so that is the number one thing he gives, Timoth he gives Timothy as, as a means for, you know, for going through this season of chaos that Paul knows is coming to the earth, all right? The second thing that he says, and it's kind of baked in, or it's kind of hidden, is the second antidote is the family of God. The second antidote, I'll say it again, to the chaos that we're facing. Number one, it's the word of God. Number two, it's the family of God. This is what Paul is communicating to Timothy. He reminds him to fan the flame the gift of faith which he received from where? From his family. And he also received it from Paul, his spiritual father, who imparted it to him. So going back to Babel, Babel is a bunch of people trying to come together and do something good for a society. Abraham became a family. It was God's family, and it was built on family. One, they were scattered and confused. That's how you're going to be if you have a humanistic worldview, honestly, especially in this era. You're going to be scattered and confused. If you're in a family, a spiritual family, you're going to thrive just like Timothy did. And here's Paul, his spiritual dad, you know, 
investing in him, sowing in him in this final moment of Paul's life. It's pretty powerful. Timothy chapter 2, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You know those from whom you've learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. So there's both those ideas plopped right in there, right? You've got, you've got, you know where you've learned it. You've learned what? The scriptures from infancy. And the scriptures are the things that are going to hold you in this season. And how do you know them? Because you've got a wise source. And that source is Paul himself, and it's the, it's the actual family of Timothy. We have so many sources right now that are trying to disciple and speak into our life that aren't wise, and they're certainly not godly, and we let those things in so easy. We, we, we let people influence us, people that we don't even know that we have no idea what their life is built on. We have no idea if they have integrity. We have no idea if they do the things they say they do. And we let them speak into our life. We let them, we let them actually change our way of how we view truth in Scripture. This is insane. And, and what, it really is. And I'm, I'm getting shocked myself, you know, at, for myself doing it, you know. I'm being honest. And, and he's saying, no, you know this source, Timothy. You know me. You know your family. This faith is real. Don't listen to all this noise. Don't get distracted with all this foolish chatter. Learn from the people that you trust, the people that have your best interest, the people that know the gospel of truth and gave it to you. I think we could all benefit from that. A few more verses. I'm almost done. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. This has got to be a highly quoted a very highly quoted verse. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to do good works? You want to change the world? We have to have scripture. We have to have the word of God. We have to hunger. We have to get it in us. That's where the good works flow. It's knowledge of God. It's, it's intimacy with him, and it comes to the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit loves the word of God. And when you get in his word, the spirit gets excited because the spirit loves to, to glorify Jesus. And the scriptures glorify Jesus. Even Justin was coming here with Leviticus, telling us how Leviticus, Jesus is in Leviticus. Because the word glorifies Jesus, and the spirit, that's what he does. And so when we get in the word and caught up in it, it allows us to do the good works. And I want to go back to that first part. All scripture is God-breathed. Do you realize the intensity of that word? All scripture is God-breathed? If this is true, our whole world is flipped up, is changed if this is true. If this word in scripture is real, then how much more hunger should we have for the word of God? Because it's inspired by him. You can bank on it. And you've got one sitting by your bed. You've got one in your phone. And this is the inspired word of God. It's God breathed. I mean, sometimes we say that. We don't realize the, the depth of that statement, what that means. 
I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. And some people will think we're crazy for believing it, but I believe it. I believe it. It's changed my life. Uh, worship team, you guys can, um, can go ahead and come up. I'm about to, about to close here. Um, so with Paul, he ends and, he, and he, he tells Timothy, you know, preach the word in season, out of season. Preach the word. You know, the people are being, they're being confused by different doctrines, different ideas. Preach the word. Preach the word. Stay true to the word. He says, he says in Timothy, I love this line. He says, I'm in chains. And, and actually, Paul, his chains actually brought him great shame. A lot of people left Paul. They rejected him. How's that for like a prophetic promise? Hey, Paul, you're going to go to prison. Everybody's going to leave you and reject you. Imagine a prophet told you that. You'd be like, get away from me. That's, that was what happened in Paul's life. They left him. They were ashamed that he was in prison. So that's not empowering. You're in prison. Is God with you? You're in prison? And he said, I may be in prison, but the, the word of God will not be chained. Isn't that good? The word of God will not be chained. There may be censorship coming for the church. But the word of God will not be chained. The gospel will not be chained. I'm not afraid of censorship. The gospel will not be chained. In fact, it will go further and farther. <laughs> Amen. I want to read one last scripture here. This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 through 5. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is a sobering scripture. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. And do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is the last words of Paul to Timothy. We need to be aware of what our ears are itching for. I don't want to be these people that Paul's writing about. We need to be aware of where cult, the lies that culture, not even, not even from a place of, it's not even nefarious. It's just what people believe. It, it's all they know. All right? And we can't let those things, we can't get drawn in. We got to stay connected to the word of God. And those that do that in this hour will thrive. And so now more than ever, I encourage you, get in his word. Hunger for his word. Because that's how he'll stay the course. And that's our charge here as pastors here at this church. We, we want you all to be rooted and grounded. We want to be rooted and grounded in these times. And so I say it with the deepest sincerity and urgency. Let the word of God ground you. Let the word of God consume you. Let it be what you listen to. Let it be what you go to sleep with. And you'll commune with God in a whole new way. And you'll, you'll do the good works from that place. Everybody stand, stand for me. Father, we... We want to keep our heart in tune with you. We want to not get tossed to and fro by the, the winds of change, by the culture, God, but we want to be connected to your heart. We want to be connected to truth. God, I pray today you'd renew our minds. 
I pray today, Father, that any place where you're not the center, Lord, that your truth, that your spirit would drive out every lie, would drive out every deception that appears pleasing, that itches our ears, but has no foundation of truth, has no intimacy, no union with you. It actually keeps us from you. So God, I pray right now that you would just reveal to us any places in our heart where we've agreed with lies and deception, where we've made ourselves the center. Holy Spirit, come. Come consume the center of our being. Come consume. Come consume. Come fire of God and burn up every false desire. Come adopt us into the family of God and separate us from the things of this world. Jesus, we want you as a center. Amen.